I've been meeting with Sean and, uh, and Rachel for premarital counseling. And uh, man, I guess I have a lot more work to do uh, in that introduction. And it's not a commercial for my premarital counseling abilities. And uh, so we'll have to have a talk later. Uh, and I'll look forward to that. Uh, well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 20. Uh, we're continuing in our post-resurrection encounters small series. Uh, that is, what happened with Jesus after He was resurrected? What did He do? There was about a 40-day period from the time of Easter until the time that Jesus was caught up, about 10 days before Pentecost that we read in Acts. And so we're just exploring the different encounters that people have had with Jesus after His resurrection. And so this morning we're looking at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to follow along as I read. John 20, verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, who was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into that mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it here in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank You for this text. We thank You for the way that You helped Thomas. We pray that You would teach us this morning how we can process our doubts. We pray that You would teach us that so that our doubts don't dominate or destroy us. We pray that You would give us insight into what to do with our doubts. I pray that You would use this time in Your Word this morning. And I pray that you would strengthen us by your word and by your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've heard the phrase doubting Thomas. Uh, if you were to use that uh, as a search, uh, enter it into your, your browser, or if you were to search a hashtag doubting Thomas, you would see that thousands of people post about that every single week. Thousands of people use this. Doubting Thomas is a phrase. It's a it's a catchphrase that we use, and it typically is used for somebody who, who should believe or who might believe or who is in a position to believe, but, but they doubt. And, and Thomas gets a really, a really bad rap uh, because he experienced doubt. But I want to tell you this morning that doubt is common. A lot of people doubt, and to be in a position of doubt is a, is a difficult position to be in. That's why Jude chapter uh, Jude verse 22 says to have mercy on those who doubt. And so in the room right now, there may be uh, a dozen or more people who have serious doubts about something. 
You might doubt your faith. You might doubt the Scripture. You might doubt the Bible. You might doubt God's plan for your life. Uh, You might doubt your spouse or your children or your career or decisions that you've made or, or haven't made. There are so many things that you can doubt and so we can learn something from, from Thomas here. And we can learn something about his process and the way he handles his doubt. And we can learn something about Jesus and the way Jesus interacts with you in the way that you experience doubt. Uh, and so from time to time, all of us have doubts about something or another. Uh, and so if you're doubting this morning, uh, this is the right message for you. And so I want to encourage you, if you have a pen or a piece of paper, uh, just to take note of the way Jesus helps Thomas deal and process his doubt so it doesn't dominate him and it doesn't destroy him. Uh, There's a really clear picture in the way that Thomas handles doubt here. Uh, It starts off on Sunday, on the Sunday that Jesus was resurrected. And Mary Magdalene, we know from Mark and we know from other texts, Mary Magdalene was one of the first to experience Jesus uh, resurrected from the grave. And so she reports it and, uh, and uh, Peter and John and they all experience um, the empty tomb and they go and report that Jesus isn't there. We read two weeks ago how on the way to Emmaus, two of Jesus' disciples are walking and Jesus appears with them and they walk with him and Jesus is showing himself on that first Sunday. Later on that night, Jesus will appear to all the disciples and that's where we pick up in verse 24 of John 20. Thomas is not with them. I don't know why Thomas isn't with them. We don't know why he has removed himself from the disciples. Uh, We learned on Friday that when Jesus was crucified actually on Thursday night when Jesus was arrested that all the disciples are going to fall away they're all fleeing they're all running and so I don't know what happened to Thomas on Friday Saturday and Sunday he may still be in hiding somewhere he may be in fear somewhere although it's not likely he's in fear because you remember in John 11 when when Jesus learns about Lazarus's death And the disciples um, tell Jesus, let's go see Lazarus. Or Jesus tells the disciples, let's go see Lazarus. Jesus says, the disciples say, didn't they just try to kill you there? And Jesus said, "Um, yes, but but we're going anyway. And Thomas says, let's go with them so that we can die with them. Thomas is the only one who says, I'm ready to die with Jesus. Let's go die with Jesus. Let's go back there. So don't give Thomas too hard of a time. Uh, in this situation. But Thomas isn't with them for some reason that, that resurrection, crucifixion weekend. We don't know where he was. He just wasn't present. So on that Sunday night, the other disciples, they told him, listen, we saw Jesus. We saw the Lord. And, and Thomas says to them, unless I see His hands, the mark of the nails... And unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Have you ever told the Lord I will never do something? If you want a good laugh, right? If you want to, if you want to say, uh, experience some, some joy in your life, just tell the Lord what you will never do, right? 
Uh, tell him I will never be a missionary or I will never go into ministry or I will never, you know, that's kind of a joke that if you want God to do something, um, tell him you will never do it or never believe something. And Thomas says this and he says some pretty graphic things. Jesus two days earlier, three days earlier, had had nails uh, piercing his fingers, his hands, and his and his feet, and and had a spear thrust in his side. And Thomas is saying, if I can't physically place my hand inside of that still fresh wound, I'm not going to believe this. If I can't insert my finger into the hole in his hand, I'm not going to believe. That is hardcore doubt right there. There's a problem with doubt. There's a problem with doubt. Doubt has an ability to nag at you, right? Doubt's never really quiet or content. It's kind of, no offense if you have a yippy dog, but it's kind of like a yippy dog that, that barks in the background or in the corner of the room that is, that is always making itself known. I have a weird, strange sensitivity to sound. Uh, I mean, I've been known to drive down the highway on a family trip and like pull over if there's a rattle in the car. If there's a rattle in the car, I've got to find it. I've got to eliminate it. I've got to, I've got to, it just bothers me to no end. And I can't take a long road trip if there is, and it's not all noise, it's just some noises. Uh, is anybody else like that where you're ultra sensitive to something and something can sort of grate at you or get under your skin or annoy you to the, don't look at anybody or point. But if that's, there are ways that we can have that. And doubts are like that, aren't they? Doubts pester. Doubts nag. And it's very uh, difficult to get comfort in doubt. It's very difficult. Uh, the only way that you can sort of live with your doubt is if you isolate yourself from the things that will remind you of your doubt, or if you surround yourself with other doubters, or if you kind of numb your doubts with substances or experiences or distractions, in all those ways you can sort of cope with doubt, but you're never really going to deal with doubt in the same way that I can never really eliminate all the rattles uh, in my van. And as you would imagine, doubt's not a really positive value in the Bible. Uh, It's really only mentioned 12 times in all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, only 12 times. And two times it's not even used in the way that we're considering doubt. Two times it's meant in a way of, of making sure of something. Job says, well, no doubt you guys have all the answers. Um, and, and Abraham says, there's no doubt that my son Joseph has been torn to pieces by a wild animal when he's confronted with the, the evidence. That's not really used in the way that we're thinking about doubt. That's not used in the context of someone reveals something to you or you're supposed to believe something and you have a doubt about that. So really only 10 times in Scripture is the word doubt Used And it's interesting in Deuteronomy, um, in the list of blessings and curses for obedience to God, the, one of the curses for disobeying the covenant that God has initiated with, with His people 
was a nagging sense of doubt. You will doubt your life. You will doubt your experience. You will doubt all of these things. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 is this word doubt. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and you shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, I wish it were evening. And in the evening you say, I can't wait till the morning because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And doubt is not a pretty picture. Doubt is misery. Doubt is nagging. Doubt is pestering. Doubt is, is constantly nagging at you and, 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 and causing you to struggle. There are eight times it's used in the New Testament. Peter starts to walk on the water, right? And, and then he sees the wind and the waves and he sees his conditions. And he says, wait, I'm on the water and this isn't supposed to be happening. And so uh, he starts to sink and Jesus reaches over and picks him up and says, why did you doubt? Um, in Matthew 28, when they saw the resurrected Jesus, it says they worshiped him. But a few people doubted whether that was really him or not. Doubt in Romans 14.23 says, whoever has doubts is condemned because they don't know whether they should eat or whether they should drink. And so whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's Romans 14.23. In James 1.6 it says, but the one, uh, let him who asks in prayer, ask in faith without doubting. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Do you struggle with doubts? I I feel for you. Doubt is a miserable place to be. It's a miserable place to be. I think that's why Jude 22 says to have mercy on those who doubt. Those of you in the room who struggle with doubt, we feel compassion It's a really hard place to be in a community of faith when everyone seems to believe, when everyone seems to accept and experience. Think about how miserable Thomas must have been on that resurrection day, on that resurrection week. Everybody is experiencing the joy that Jesus could be alive, the excitement that that all of their hopes and all of their faith and all of those things are are not disappointing, but they're experiencing the resurrected Jesus and Thomas is doubting. You see in verse 26 that that Thomas, uh, there's something has happened. It's eight days later. So this is the Monday, a week from Monday after the resurrection. And other people have been experiencing Jesus and having sightings of Jesus. And and among the community of believers, there is a great joy rising. But not for Thomas. Thomas is in misery. Thomas is plagued with doubt. What do we see with Thomas and his doubts? How can we see this process? Well, if you're taking notes, if you particularly struggle with doubt, or maybe you know somebody who struggles with doubt that will benefit from this message, let me just sort of give you a template for one healthy way for you to process and deal with doubt based on what Thomas does here. First thing you see is that he withdraws. Thomas withdraws. He, he removes himself from the community of faith. And that may seem counterintuitive. What did he do with those eight days? What did he do over that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? Why wasn't he with them? Where did he go? Well, I know one thing that his doubts strengthened in isolation. 
as he isolated himself, as he removed himself, his, his doubts seemed to solidify. When he was by himself, when he was in his own mind, when he was in his own sort of bubble, when he was away from everybody else, his doubts seemed to solidify. They seemed to strengthen. They seemed to gather momentum. And, and that's one of the drawbacks of doubt is that if you're struggling with doubt and if you're alone, those arguments in your mind seem to pick up steam. They seem to they seem to. Gain momentum. They seem to roll faster, and and you're convincing yourself of your doubts, and and so unchecked in isolation, doubt is a terrible thing. Oh, it's painful. It's miserable. And his doubts strengthened in isolation. So so much so that um, we see from the text here that he kind of doubles down on his on his doubt when he when he reengages with the disciples. I will never believe. Unless I touch the wound, unless I feel the inside of his body with my own fingertips, I refuse to believe. He doubles down on his doubt as he isolates himself. To the degree that if he, he maintains his doubts even in the presence of his peers... Now, he's walked with Jesus for at least three years. He's been around these guys for a, a period of time. And so even in the midst of, of their presence and their experience, he doesn't believe based on their testimony. He doesn't trust them. He's skeptical. He's critical. Uh, you might have experienced Jesus, he might have said to Mary Magdalene. You might have seen Jesus, he, he could have said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's, he's hearing their evidence but based on their evidence, he refuses to believe. He's still critical. He's still skeptical. He's still struggling and uh, maintaining his doubt in the midst of his peers. Now, now, let me just tell you this right up front. That's not necessarily bad for you to doubt. Not necessarily a bad thing for you to be critical, for you to use your mind, for you to reason, for you to struggle with doubt. Struggling with doubt is not a bad thing. It's what you do with your doubt. It's what you do with that process of doubt. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that Thomas doubts if what he's doubting is able to overcome his strongest doubts. Do you hear me there? I don't think it's a bad thing to doubt. I don't think it's a terrible thing to doubt if what you're doubting um, is stronger than your doubt. Just... Take, for example, a familiar scene to all of us, maybe, if you've seen. How many have you seen The Wizard of Oz? Just raise your hand. You've seen The Wizard of Oz, right? Right there. Uh, they're at the big castle, and they're in the big room with smoke and booming voices, and, and there's this impression of this wizard in this room, and they're terrified. But, but what happens, right? Little Toto, right? Little Toto. He kind of starts to doubt a little bit and he runs over to the corner and he starts to yank on the curtain and, and the wizard up there is saying, pay no attention to the little man behind the curtain, right? That experience is worth doubting, right? I mean, we see that and, and the big green wizard, was he green? I can't remember. But the big green guy in the, in, the, in, the, in the room there, he's worth doubting, Right? They all knew he was worth doubting. There was no, um, there was no stronger d thing that could overcome their doubt about this experience. It just didn't seem to add up. Doubt's not a bad thing. Doubt means your mind is working. 
And nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does God call you to shut down your mind and your faculties and your reasoning ability and just jump into blind faith. That's where critics of the faith get it wrong. Listen, some of the smartest human beings ever to live believed in Jesus Christ. Nowhere are we encouraged to shut down our mind. And so doubt isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just means that your mind is working. And that's not a bad thing. Thomas maintains his doubts in the midst of his peers, but he also leaves an open door for belief. Do you see that? Thomas doubted, I I will never believe unless. And it's that little word unless that makes doubt, that opens a door for doubt to become great faith. That little word unless. Thomas says, unless I'm able to do this, unless I see, unless I place, And so he sets the conditions by which he would lay down his doubts and fully believe. That's an important part of the process. He has his doubts. He clarifies his doubts in isolation. He doubles down on his doubts, but he also leaves a little window for possibility that this is true. He leaves an open door. And these weren't outrageous conditions, these conditions for belief, were they? It's not outrageous. I've heard... um, I don't want to say idiots, but I've heard people say things like, if God were real, He would make something appear in my hand. Or He would give me a million dollars right now. Listen, that's that's just idiotic. If if you have a doubt and you're asking for some sort of conjurer to make... uh, To make your doubts go away by doing something somewhat outrageous that's self-serving. Give me a Lamborghini, Jesus, you know. I won't believe unless you uh, let me win the lottery or something outrageous. Under the circumstances, Thomas's conditions for belief are not that outrageous, are they? Other people are seeing and experiencing the risen Jesus. Other people are touching Him and and seeing Him eat. Uh, The two on the way to Emmaus, they saw Him break bread. They saw Him take bread. and They they experienced a physical Jesus. Thomas' conditions aren't that outrageous. They're extreme, right? Kind of gory. They want to touch His... He wants to touch His wounds. I mean, but it's not outrageous, They were sensory conditions. And by the way, Jesus went out of his way in this resurrection period to convince his disciples. We talked about last week in the restoration of Peter, Jesus built a fire. He he got some fish and he broke it and he started to cook it on the fire. He, He motioned to them. He was allowing them to experience him with touch and with sight. And, and there would be a controversy. You remember 1 John written um, maybe 30 to 60 years after Jesus' resurrection? John wrote uh, in 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, that little letter, he says, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have heard, that which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands, that life was made manifest and we have seen it And we testify it to you and proclaim to you eternal life. Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that they're experiencing him, not just as some sort of a ghost or an illusion or anything like that. He allows them to experience him. Another thing Thomas does with his doubts, not only does he leave a a door open for belief, a possibility, but he reengages with the group of disciples. And, And don't miss this. Because if you're struggling with doubt, your temptation is to remove yourself from the room, right? 
Your temptation is to stop going to small group, is to stop going to Sunday school, it's to stop calling your Christian friends. Your temptation in doubt is to surround yourself with fellow critics and fellow skeptics and fellow doubters. And, and that's really intellectually dishonest in some ways is to, to only read the things that your crew or your uh, people read. I make it a regular habit to read all kinds of books from all kinds of authors from all sorts of perspectives because a faith that's untested is not a strong faith. Faith has to be tested. And it has to be tested by skeptics and by doubters and by other people that you engage with. You need to have your faith um, rub up against or, or be in contact with people who don't think the way you think. That's a good thing. Thomas does what's right. He re-engages with the disciples and he makes his doubts and his conditions known. It's one thing to re-engage and to keep all your doubts private. There's people in the room here now, and you have fostered an environment in which your doubts are thriving, and you're, you're really miserable in a lot of ways. Thomas doesn't do that at all. He re-engages, and he tells the disciples, I doubt, I do not believe, I refuse to believe, unless these things happen. It's, it's wrong, it's hard, it's difficult, it's the wrong way to go for you to foster doubts internally, and come in here and sort of shake hands and Amen. Everything's great. My life is great. Um, Everything's going well for me. And for you not to verbalize your doubts is is a wrong way to approach them. Thomas doesn't do that at all. He walks in and he he expresses his doubt. And the cool thing about the disciples is we have no record here that they're upset with him. They're not throwing him out of the room because he's expressing doubt. He's actually welcomed and they're they're engaging with him. Well, what about that? We saw this and, and we saw that and, and we're experiencing this. And, and they're helping Thomas by coming up against his doubts. Thomas re-engages. He declares his doubts and his conditions. Uh, I think it's amazing here in verse 27. Verse 26, Jesus stands among them. He comes and stands among all the disciples and he says, Peace. He says peace twice. And he says peace twice and it's, uh, it's, it's couched in between. In other Gospels, he mentions peace in this situation. Between this confrontation with Thomas. And I, I don't want that to be lost on us. That Thomas is experiencing the opposite of peace. I mean, he's miserable. Uh, he's struggling. Everybody else is experiencing the joy of their faith being confirmed and strengthened, but but not Thomas. And so Jesus comes in speaking peace. Verse 27, He says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not continue in unbelief, but believe. Jesus gives him, meets the conditions that He asks for. He meets the conditions. He, He does everything He needs, just exactly what Thomas needs for him to believe. And you may think, well, I've asked God to do a lot of things for me that He's never done. He has never met the conditions of my unbelief. And He has never satisfied the doubts that I have. 
And it could be that maybe he has, and maybe you're, you're just looking for something more, or maybe over and over and over again, he's shown you in the way he works in other people's lives, and in the messages you hear, and the way he's provided for you, and the, and the resources around you, that, that he hasn't met your, your um, struggles with doubt in the way that you want him to. But maybe in other ways, he has met your doubt with sufficient evidence for you to believe. Jesus reengages and and shows Thomas, and Thomas is absolutely convinced. He's absolutely convinced. There are some ways in which doubt keeps what we are afraid of most at an arm's length. You understand what I mean? Maybe you don't want to believe, and so you're maintaining doubt because you just don't want to believe. And in your heart of hearts, you know this could be true. And so you put up a sort of a, a defense system. You put things in front of you so that you don't have to believe. Well, if Jesus would do this, then I would believe. And when he does that, you think, well, if he does this, then I'll believe. And then he does that. And maybe he does. Maybe you're just constantly looking for the thing that keeps. Because you know that once Jesus makes himself real to you, it's going to cost you something. Maybe you're going to have to repent. Maybe you're going to have to stop sinning in a way that you really personally enjoy sinning. Maybe the cost of following Jesus terrifies you. Or maybe it's a pride issue and you start to think to yourself, maybe I would have to confess that I'm wrong about something. Maybe if Jesus confirms this, that I'm wrong. And maybe my pride says, I don't want to be wrong. I can't be wrong. And so I'm going to maintain my doubt. When Jesus went to heal the, the, the man at the sheep pool. I can't remember. The, he, he heals this man in Solomon's colonnade. And it's interesting, when Jesus walks up on this man who has been afflicted for 38 years, he, he first asks him, do you, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? The guy has been um, an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus says, do you, do, you, do you want to get well? Why does he even ask that? Because there's a part of us that gets comfortable in our conditions. We just... I don't, want to, I don't want to be better. I'm comfortable here. I know the routine. I know that it's safe. It's comfortable. I would kind of rather stay in this situation. Thomas isn't like that. Thomas isn't like that. Thomas follows through with his word. I will not believe unless these conditions are met. When those conditions are met, what does he say? My Lord and my God. Thomas pushes all the chips in and says, I'm in. I'm 100% in. Do you know that, um, that church history tells us that Thomas became the apostle to India? That uh, while disciples and others were taking the gospel um, westward into Europe, southward into Africa, north into what we know as Russia and that part of the world, Thomas was the only one that we know of that went west, uh, eastward into possibly as far as, as what we know of as China. There's significant evidence that suggests he might have been martyred in India decades later for his faith. Thomas struggled with doubt. There's no doubt about that. I don't mean that to be funny, but, but he <laughs> struggled with doubt. And there's, it's okay, because he processed his doubt in a really healthy way. He, he, he verbalized his doubt. He set conditions for his doubt. When those conditions were met... He, he was open to belief, and he, he believed. And one of the benefits that he might not have ever seen coming was the whole community of disciples were immediately encouraged and strengthened in their faith because of Thomas's doubts and process. Who knows that if you don't 
process your doubt in a healthy way, that you can't strengthen everybody in this room. Everybody can benefit when your doubts are verbalized and you're processing them in a healthy way. And then when those conditions are met and you become a follower of Jesus, you actually believe and you start to walk in a way that is congruent with faith. Everyone in the community of faith benefits when a doubter is publicly convinced. All I have to do is look at Acts chapter 9. Think about Paul, right? Paul is so much of a doubter that he's arresting and persecuting and approving of the bloody death of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Wholeheartedly, yes, kill that guy. And a couple chapters later, he's on his back, convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and becomes the main tool for the spread of the gospel and the writing of our New Testament. Do you struggle with doubt? It could be that if you handle your doubt in a good way, in a healthy process, that God could have an incredible plan for you that you become a tool for ministry that could never happen otherwise. God may have an incredible purpose and plan for you. The fact that you're doubting isn't bad. What you're doing with your doubt might not be the best way. Think about Paul, think about Saul, think about Augustine, think about C.S. Lewis, think about Josh McDowell, think about other people who have struggled with doubt. Think about uh, The Case for Christ, uh, the author of The Case for Christ. It's this book where he, he doubts all the experiences that his wife has had. Uh, and, and in the process of that, he himself investigates and takes his doubts into the open and begins to publicly investigate those things. And he's convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. In the end, we see Thomas restored and useful to God and growing. If you struggle with doubt, Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. If if you're a believer in the room and you don't struggle with doubt and you know someone who is, go easy on them. They're in one of the most miserable positions they will ever be in. And if that's you, if you're privately doubting, not just faith in Jesus, but but maybe your decisions, your career, your family choices, other things that are happening in your life, use Thomas's process for handling doubt in a way that helps you overcome those doubts. Because while doubt is a place that we, while doubt is a place that we will all visit, it's never a good place to live. And so, if you're living in doubt, there's hope for you if you handle this process well. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for that. We do thank you that you love us enough to allow us to experience doubt. But you also love us enough to help us find a way out of it. Thank you that what we are doubting uh, might just be something that uh, we should doubt. But when it comes to you, you are able to overcome those doubts. And so we thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name that whatever doubt we're struggling with today, uh, that we would take that to you and that we would engage in this healthy process of having those doubts subside so that there may be peace. Somebody in this room needs peace. They feel empty. They feel um, harassed. They feel helpless. They feel tormented in many ways. And doubt contributes to that. And so I pray just in the same way that you spoke peace to the disciples, I pray that in the same way that you would speak peace to someone in this room who is experiencing torment and struggle. And so we ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.